0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the U.S. heads for the door of the Paris Climate Agreement, hundreds of American business folk, mayors, and senators at the U.N. Bond Summit say we're still in.
1: We are here in Bonn to say that we are not saying bon voyage to our commitment to climate action on our planet. That is why we are here
2: also arguing that nature should have fundamental rights. Corporations have all kinds of rights, for better or for worse, under Canadian and American law. And when you put it to people that, why should corporations have rights and not rivers? That idea that rights can extend beyond humans to other entities, I find people tend to take a step back and go, oh, let me think about that.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Water,
1: justice, water,
0: the U.S. delegation invited the public in for its only official climate presentation at COP23, this year's UN Conference of the Parties in Bonn, Germany. The Trump team came to push coal and nuclear power, and the room was packed, but mostly with protesters. So to
3: be but we see right through your greed. It's killing all across the world for that coal mining,
4: and we proudly stand up until you keep it in the ground.
0: Even as President Trump says he will pull America out of the Paris Climate Agreement unless he gets, quote, a better deal, the rest of the world is moving ahead to fulfill the landmark accord. And if the administration won't do it, a group of American governors, mayors, and business leaders who came to Bonn midway through COP23 say they surely will. They call their bold claim to keep the U.S. committed to its Paris Agreement goals America's pledge. <laughs> COP23 President and Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama kicked off the event.
5: They may be called non-state actors in this process, but make no mistake, they are leading actors in driving more ambitious climate action in their states and cities in this critical pre-2020 period. And we can't do without them.
0: New York City Mayor and Philanthropist Michael Bloomberg says that America's pledge can keep the U.S. on track with its Paris commitments. We
6: hope our pledge will be accepted alongside the nationally determined contributions that every other party makes. Through America's pledge, we will continue measuring and reporting our progress on reducing emissions, just as every other nation is committed to do so the world can hold the United States accountable for reaching our commitment.
0: The cities, states, and businesses that have voluntarily decided to be held accountable can make a big dent in global emissions, Mayor Bloomberg told the crowd.
6: And together, this coalition represents more than half of the entire U.S. economy. If this group were a country, we would have the world's third largest economy.
0: Pittsburgh has joined America's pledge, and its mayor, Bill Peduto, spoke for cities in America like his, which built their old economies with fossil fuels.
4: And
2: in the heart of coal country, in the heart of natural gas, in the heart of the oil country, there was a different idea that within that city could blossom a new economy. And today we see it, where there are more people employed in green energy than oil, coal, and gas combined. And Pittsburgh's economy has come back.
0: All it takes, says Mayor Peduto, is planning and dedication.
2: We have to create a Marshall Plan within the United States that concentrates on the areas that have been left behind and the people that feel that this is not a part of their future or their children's future. And let's start building those wind turbines in West Virginia. Let's start building those solar panels in Eastern Ohio. And let's start giving them an opportunity to join with us and change this country's track.
0: California already has a cap-and-trade program for global warming gas emissions, which includes Canada. And Governor Jerry Brown came to Bond to offer his roadmap for protecting the climate.
1: So California is the most aggressive, the most far-reaching climate action state in the country, in the Western Hemisphere. By the way, is it enough? No. Do we have a lot of pollutants? Yes. Do we have 32 million cars driving 335 billion miles every year? Yes. Are we going to stop them today? No. Are we going to stop them in time? Yes, if the America's Pledge is picked up by the rest of the country and the rest of the world, which it will. And that's why we're here.
0: Walmart's Senior Vice President of Sustainability, Laura Phillips, spoke for America's businesses as she outlined Walmart's commitment to a greener supply chain.
7: We have a responsibility to actually look out into how our products are being manufactured and used and think about the emissions of our products, not just in our own operations. And for Walmart, we've really learned that our work in climate, number one, it's been really good for our business. So we've seen that our investments in energy efficiency, our investments in renewable have saved us a lot of money.
0: Even though the U.S. executive branch of government is rolling back climate action, legislators, including Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, joined the America's Pledge event.
1: We are here in Bonn uh, to say that we are not saying Bon voyage to our commitment to climate action on our planet. That is why we are here.
0: And the climate denying policies of President Trump are on thin ice, Senator Markey declared.
1: President Trump might want to cop out on climate action, but we know that COP really stands for Can't Obstruct. Progress, that climate the, <laughs> that that climate outlast president.
0: Massachusetts Democrat, Senator Ed Markey. even though the u s. is largely standing aside from the Paris climate agreement for now, the rest of the world made implementing Paris the primary work of cop twenty three in Bonn. And with us now to help navigate what's been done and what lies ahead is Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Hi, Alden. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks, Steve. Good to be with you again. Hey, Alden. Uh, Great to have you here. I understand that there was a U.S. Climate Action Center that attracted a lot of attention.
5: Yeah, it did. This was put together by the We Are Still In coalition of mayors and, and governors and business leaders, university presidents and others that wanted to demonstrate to the world that despite the actions of President Trump announcing he's going to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, that major elements of U.S. society remain committed to achieving our goals under Paris. They're taking action to uh, drive the clean energy revolution forward, to uh, decarbonize their business uh, sectors, to uh, make sure that we have a shot at meeting the commitments that President Obama made under Paris. And they really made quite a splash here. And I think they really got the word out that Donald Trump does not speak for the real United States. So, Alden, what were the big takeaways from this year's U.N. Climate Conference
0: of the Parties, COP23?
5: Well, the, this was kind of a in-between COP, in-between Paris and uh, the meeting in Poland next year. They had to uh, lay the groundwork for discussion of uh, collective adequacy of ambition against the Paris temperature targets. Uh, we already know that countries aren't doing enough collectively to come anywhere close to meeting the temperature limitation goals in Paris. United Nations Environment uh, Program put out a report on that uh, the week before the COP, showing that if we stay on the current commitments, we would only get one third of the way to where we need to be by 2030 to have a fighting chance to stay well below two degrees Celsius temperature increase. So that's job one is to lay the groundwork for this discussion next year in Poland about how we will raise our game, try to close that gap. Another thing, of course, they focused on here is the implementation rules for Paris itself. Things like accounting for land use, emissions, uh, market mechanisms, emissions trading, Uh, transparency and reporting of national uh, efforts to constrain their emissions, which of course has been a primary goal for the United States under both Republican and Democratic administrations for the last uh, decade or so. And then of course, the perennial issue of finance, which is actually what's uh, the only remaining issue as we speak pending right now. Uh, There's a big fight going on about uh, how developed countries will be more transparent about how they intend to meet the $100 billion by 2020 per year commitment they made in Copenhagen to help developing countries decarbonize their development paths and also cope with the mounting impacts of climate change. Uh, Alden, there's been a lot of concern about uh, loss and damage. And
0: here's a year where we saw tremendous flooding in the developing part of the world. How are these negotiations addressing uh, concerns uh, by developing countries uh, about how to handle loss and damage?
5: Well, it's, it's been very frustrating for the vulnerable countries here because there is a program that was launched in Warsaw in 2013, the so-called Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage, which has been looking at this issue. How do you use insurance? How do you use government funding to try to help countries that are facing these uh, these sudden impacts? And they continue to do the technical work, but the developed countries, including the United States, have been blocking any political space where they can start to discuss how they start to ramp up substantial amounts of funding.
0: In other words, it's like the Cuba Gooding uh, character in Jerry Maguire, show me the money.
5: Show me the money. Uh, show me how you're going to help me deal with resettlement of refugees from islands. Uh, how you are going to deal with economies like Fiji, which is the presidency of this COP, they suffered tremendous damage a few years ago from Typhoon Winston, wiped out about one-third of their economy. They're just recovering from that. Uh, and of course, this just recently, we saw devastating hurricanes for Barbuda, Puerto Rico, other islands in the Caribbean. So this is a growing issue. It's an issue of urgency for these countries. But so far, the U.S., uh, Europe, Japan, other developed countries haven't been Willing to open up a conversation about how you meet those needs long term, and uh, at
0: this meeting, I think there's a bit of bad news, isn't it? That global greenhouse gas emissions are on the rise uh, after being relatively flat over the past two or three years.
5: Yeah, that that information just came out uh, during during the conference of the parties here. Uh, we have been relatively flat the last two or three years. It looks like preliminary figures for 2017, so there could be as much as a two two and a half percent increase in in carbon emissions driven uh, largely by China with some other countries coming in. So, of course, if, if that was the beginning of a trend, that would be quite worrisome, but it just shows, I think, that uh, despite the celebration over Paris, this is by no means in the bank. There's, there's hard work that needs to be done in all countries. And the fact that uh, coal plants continue to get financed in Vietnam and Indonesia and India and other places just shows that we haven't turned the corner yet. Explain for people who may not know
0: the U.N. climate negotiation process intimately, as you do, how non-state actors get involved in this.
5: Well, non-state actors include uh, businesses, non-governmental organizations like UCS, uh, indigenous groups, labor union, youth groups, research uh, institutions. There's a whole infrastructure of different constituencies in this U.N. process, and they play a vital role both trying to influence the negotiations and and the positions that countries take, talking to the media and to the public about what's going on here, but also in the wake of Paris, playing a critical role in implementation of the agreements. Because if you think about it, the states, the cities, the business community, uh, the research institutions, the development groups, they really are where the rubber meets the road in, in terms of implementation and reducing emissions. In this dialogue that's going to be held in Poland next year, uh, the presidency, the Fiji presidency has made a lot of space uh, for engagement of these non-state actors in the process, realizing that we have a lot to bring to the table and that we're essential to implementation of any commitments that uh, countries make. Massachusetts
0: Democratic Senator uh, Ed Markey at the America's Pledge session kind of cracked a joke uh, saying that COP, COP, stands for Climate Outlasts presidents. Uh, To what extent are folks there feeling that Mr. Trump's approach is but a blip in the U.S. approach to this?
5: Well, I I think people were given a lot of comfort by the highly visible presence here of of senators and governors, mayors, business leaders from the U.S. You're seeing a joint effort by China, the European Union, and Canada through this uh, process they launched in September called the, the Ministerial on Climate Action, or MOCA. It kind of replaces the major economies forum that the Obama administration was spearheading over the last eight years. This is a space where ministers come together periodically to assess progress, to talk about how they can do more. Uh, There's going to be the next meeting of this group in, in the spring in Europe, and then China will host a meeting in the fall next year. That's one place where leadership will be coming from. People aren't waiting for the Trump administration. They, they plan to take uh, action on their own. They're talking uh, about work on electric vehicles, on renewable energy. Just today you had uh, 21 countries and, and states uh, announce that they were committed to phasing out use of coal in the relatively near future. I think they hope by Poland next year to build that up to 50. So there's all kinds of initiatives going on uh, without the United States uh, in the picture. The real test, I think, will come over these next three years, out to 2020, when countries have to make decisions about whether they're going to strengthen uh, their commitments, and if so, by how much. That's when we'll see the acid test of whether uh, the U.S. pulling back has has really made an impact on the willingness of other countries to move forward. Alden
0: Myers, the director of strategy and policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden, thanks so much for taking the
5: time with us today. It was great to be with you, Steve.
0: Alaska has the largest oil field in North America, with an 800-mile-long pipeline to bring all that crude from the far north slope to Valdez, where the tankers load up. And ever since the Trans-Alaska Pipeline went into service in 1977, industry has talked about constructing a parallel one to tap the region's vast reserves of natural gas. Well, President Trump has now added to that talk by promoting a preliminary deal with China during his recent visit with President Xi— Alaska and China would split the $43 billion tab to finance and build the pipeline and terminals, and China would guarantee the purchase of the gas. Alex Morban is an oil and gas reporter for Alaska Dispatch News, and he joins us now. Welcome
4: to Living on Earth, Alex. Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So why is getting liquefied natural gas to Asian markets such an attractive option for Alaska?
4: Well, one of our projects for gas line in the past had looked at moving gas to the lower 48. It would just be gas, gas. It would not be liquid gas. That changed once we had the shale revolution in the lower 48. And There's plenty of gas there now. So then it became a matter of looking at what other markets are out there. So about six years ago, the state began looking at moving gas efficiently to Asia.
0: Tell folks where this pipeline would actually be built.
4: So the pipeline would go from the Prudhoe Bay oil fields, where the gas is now, and it would follow the Trans-Alaska Pipeline for much of its route and connect essentially the Arctic Ocean to our Cook Inlet in southern Alaska. So it would move the gas 800 miles from northern Alaska to southern Alaska. And there, in a little town known as Nikiski, the gas would be turned into a liquid in a Another costly construction project there, and then put onto tankers so it could be shipped overseas.
0: So there's natural gas up on the North Slope there at Prudhoe Bay. What happens to it now?
4: The natural gas is being reinjected back into the ground to keep the pressure up in the underground reservoirs. So it's had a very vital existence because it's essentially allowed for much more production of oil on the North Slope. So the production of oil up there has been far greater than anticipated. And gas is playing a huge role in that.
0: What's the state of Alaska's economy like right now? And how could this deal to put in a natural gas pipeline from the North Slope affect the overall economic situation there?
4: Well, we're in a recession. We have the nation's highest unemployment. We've lost a lot of jobs, particularly high-paying jobs in the oil fields. So we are desperate for a project. There's uncertainty about how much this would financially benefit us. But certainly in the hundreds of millions right away, if it pans out as the state says it would, and billions as the debt is paid off 20 years after it begins production. So we could easily shrink our deficit.
0: So I gather the deal would involve having the state help finance this thing. What are the barriers there?
4: Well, the barriers to the state helping finance this thing is that we don't have a lot of money. We have a very guarded protectionist view of our Alaska Permanent Fund, which has about $63 billion and largely seeded with oil revenues that have grown over time. So a lot of Alaskans would be politically opposed to that being used for this project. So (laughs) where does Alaska get the money? We're not quite sure. That's why we need big partners for this project.
0: So I gather that a firm commitment isn't expected from either the state or the Chinese until sometime late next year. What's your opinion about how likely this deal is to actually go through?
4: I would give it less than 50%. so on the one hand, you have a lot of LNG competitors around the world, lots of LNG projects for China to choose from. And significantly, we have here in Alaska at this point, a high-cost project with an uncertainty about the price of gas once the project starts moving gas. On the plus side, we are close to China relative to other LNG projects. We can really reduce shipping costs. We've got a huge amount of gas that once someone swallows that pill up front and agrees to invest, this can move gas for decades. So, but still I would think less than 50% and uh, hopefully I'll be surprised as an Alaskan. (laughs) with family and you know mortgage and all that stuff.
0: Now, it seems to me that this was the biggest deal that Trump brought back from his trip to Asia. How much of this was for show and how much of this is, well,
4: gonna go? Certainly there's an incentive for show here with Trump blasting China over the trade deficit and wanting to show that it's being lowered. That was there for show. Now it's up to the state and China to get past those political considerations and make something go.
0: Alex De Marbon is a reporter for Alaska Dispatch News. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
4: Yeah, thanks.
0: We'll check in with Peter Dykstra now for a visit beyond the headlines. Peter's with dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. And he's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter, how you doing?
6: I'm doing okay, Steve, thanks. When it comes to dirty air and out-of-control pollution, China usually gets all of the dubious glory. But you know what? India is also an air pollution leader. Recent air quality in the city of Delhi was so bad that United Airlines suspended its flights into Delhi last
0: week. Well, I don't think I recall hearing that happening there before. Uh, Some kind of visibility issue for pilots?
6: That's well, a safety issue, yeah, but not for taking off and landing, just for breathing. A United spokesperson cited the public health emergency in Delhi as the reason for the suspension. And here's another measurement of Delhi's foul air.
0: Uh, go ahead and take my breath away.
6: Yeah, well, that's, that's what was happening in Delhi. During the current emergency, the level of fine particle air pollution in the city of 19 million was so high that it's estimated to be equal to smoking 44 cigarettes a
0: day. Wow, that's more than two packs.
6: So why is Delhi's smog so bad? There's several reasons. Widespread burning of crop stubble in neighboring states, industrial pollution, and rampant construction in the capital on top of chaotic traffic.
0: I see, which I guess is obviously more than they can right now in Delhi. Hey, what else do you have?
6: Well, I have some mixed news from the coal world. A team of international scientists crunched the numbers for fossil fuel consumption, and they say after three years of virtually no growth in oil, gas, and coal burning, 2017 is poised to show an increase, thanks mostly to more coal use in China.
0: Uh, And so let's hear the good side of this mixed news.
6: Well, the good news comes in two parts. First, climate negotiators say Germany is on a path to exit the coal mining business by the year 2030. And the other? Second is the world's second largest mining company, Rio Tinto. They're completing their exit from the coal mining business. Rio Tinto has been selling off its coal mines for the past few years. They say they'll be out of the coal
0: sector as soon as they can unload their remaining mines in Australia. Seems like coal is more and more out in the cold these days, huh? Hey, let's take our regular spin through the history vault. What do you have for us?
6: This past week was the 75th anniversary of what was arguably the start of the atomic age. The University of Chicago was a major college football power until abruptly dropping its program in 1939. And what better use for an unused football stadium than to split the atom for the first time? In 1942, Nobel laureate physicist Enrico Fermi built a makeshift lab beneath the football grandstand, and a few weeks later, the first self-sustained atomic chain
0: reaction took place. So one of the defining factors of the 20th century began under a football stadium grandstand, huh?
6: That's right. And here we are well into the 21st century. The University of Chicago has restored a small-scale football program, and the world has restored its interest and its anxiety about the bomb.
0: Well, let's just hope they don't drop one of those. Thanks, Peter.
6: All right, Steve. Anytime. We'll talk to you soon.
0: That's Peter Dykstra of dailyclimate.org and environmentalhealthnewssehn.org. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Less than 150 years ago in America, black people finally won the right to be full citizens and vote, and voting rights for women followed 50 years later. And less than two decades ago, people in America won the right to marry whomever they choose, regardless of gender. Over time, the rights of people to fairness and equality have expanded, and now there is a move to extend intrinsic rights to exist to nature. Environmental lawyer David Boyd has written a book called the rights of nature, a legal revolution that could save the world. He says trees, rivers, and ecosystems have basic rights that we, as a part of nature ourselves, are morally bound to honor. David Boyd teaches law at the University of British Columbia, and he joins us now from his home in the San Juan Islands. Welcome to Living on Earth,
2: David. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you, Steve.
0: So a legal revolution that could save the world. Explain the concept of personhood rights for nature and why you believe it's not such a wacky idea.
2: Okay, well, you know, people think of a wacky idea as being human rights for nature, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about chimpanzees or endangered species or ecosystems having human rights like the right to vote. What we're talking about is legal recognition of the rights of animals, species, and nature, and In our Western legal systems, we've recognized the legal rights of non-human persons for many, many years. So examples include municipalities and corporations that we designate as legal persons. And then through the law, we articulate what are the rights of a corporation, for example. So now what's emerging around the world in terms of the rights of nature are what are the rights of a river? What are the rights of a chimpanzee? What are the rights of an ecosystem. So we have to be quite clear in distinguishing human rights, which we're not talking about, from the rights of legal persons, which we are talking about.
0: Now you live among the San Juan Islands off Vancouver and Seattle, and you write in your book about your relationship with a particular set of sentient creatures, and you suggest that maybe they inspired you to do this work. Talk to me about those creatures and what you've observed and why they inspired you.
2: Uh-huh. Well, Steve, what you're referring to, there are a population of killer whales that live here. They're called the Southern Resident Killer Whales, and they are an absolutely extraordinary species that swims past Pender Island routinely during the spring, summer, and fall in pursuit of Chinook salmon, which make up 80% of their diet. Now, these Southern Resident Killer Whales suffered a, a severe blow in the 1960s and 1970s when over 50 of them were kidnapped and taken for display in aquariums in Canada, the United States, and around the world. And as a result, they've been on Canada's endangered species list for decades now. Unfortunately, their population is not recovering, and that's because of declines in Chinook salmon, pollution of the ocean, and disturbance from vessel noise. But I have a little writing cabin where we live here on Pender Island, and I can actually hear those whales when they're going past. Once I was on a sailboat and the captain threw a hydrophone overboard when we came across a pod of killer whales. And I can tell you that about 12 of us were on board and all of us were literally in tears listening in on the communication. I would call it a conversation between these killer whales. They have brains that are larger than human brains, they have this incredibly sophisticated sonar or echolocation system, they live in matrilineal societies, and they really are in deep, deep trouble because of human actions. And so they inspired me to write this book, and they're also inspiring me to continue working on their behalf and advocating for recognition that these orcas have rights.
0: So what kind of rights would facilitate the continuation of the orcas there?
2: Well, orcas are a good example. So again, going back to our earlier conversation, orcas don't need human rights. They don't need the right to vote. But orcas do need the right to a clean environment. They need the right to an adequate supply of food. And they should have a right not to be disturbed and harassed by humans. And those basic rights, if we actually recognize them in law and then fulfilled our responsibilities towards the Orcas would probably be their best shot at surviving beyond the 21st century.
0: So in your book, you talk about the, the evolution of rights. Black people like me didn't have the right to vote, were held as slaves. Women didn't have the right to vote, couldn't own property. Blacks and women were viewed as property before they got rights. And it would seem to me that in most cases, nature
2: is viewed as somehow as property of humans as well. No, you're absolutely right, and that is really at the heart of the problems that we're facing today in the world. You know, we live in a world where scientists are telling us that we're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction in the four and a half billion year history of the planet. I mean, that has to be an eye-opener for human beings who care about their future and their children's future. And one of the things that's driving that mass extinction is the fact that we regard nature and animals whether domestic animals or wild animals, as property. And, you know, if you look at a map of the globe, Steve, with, you know, over 150 million square kilometers of land, we as human beings purport to own every square inch of that land. It's really an act of breathtaking arrogance for one species among tens of millions of species to say, it's all ours.
0: How do you get people around this concept of personal property? I mean, the very notion of where people in Western society live, they, quote, own real
2: estate. Yes, and, you know, that's going to be probably more challenging when we get down to people's personal property, but I think a huge amount of land in the world is ostensibly owned by governments, and governments don't have the same personal attachment that individuals do.
0: So most cultures see nature as property of humans. Which cultures are exceptions to this trend?
2: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, indigenous cultures around the world, whether in Canada, the United States or New Zealand and Australia, indigenous cultures have never seen nature as property. They've always seen nature as relatives, as part of a community to which they belong. So, you know, if you think of the great American conservationist Aldo Leopold, he said, the only way we can solve all of these problems is to stop treating nature as a commodity which we own and recognize nature as a community to which we belong. And I think Aldo Leopold, although he expressed that very eloquently, was just restating something that's been core to the societies and the cultures of indigenous people around the world. And so what's really fascinating from a contemporary perspective is that the resurgence of some of these indigenous cultures is resulting in laws in Western countries, such as the United States and New Zealand, where laws and governments are actually recognizing the rights of nature. That's
0: environmental lawyer David Boyd. Our discussion about the rights of nature continues just ahead here on Living on Earth. Don't go away.
7: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We're back now with David Boyd, author of The Rights of Nature, A Legal Revolution That Could Save the World, to continue our discussion of the notion of recognizing the legal rights of ecosystems and natural features to be themselves.
2: Uh, So, David, where did this idea start to catch on? Well, the idea actually, you know, beyond indigenous cultures, the first time this idea arose in a legal context was actually in the United States. It happened when Walt Disney, the great movie mogul, was proposing a ski resort development in a beautiful area of California's Sierra Nevada mountains known as the Mineral King Valley. And in one of the first environmental lawsuits in American history the Sierra Club challenged the approval of this ski resort and actually succeeded in getting an injunction to block its construction. However Walt Disney appealed that court decision and was successful in overturning the injunction on the basis that the Sierra Club had no standing to bring the lawsuit that no Sierra Club members were being personally or financially harmed by the project. And the Sierra Club then appealed that to the Supreme Court of the United States, you know, the highest court in the land. And so when this case about the proposed ski resort in the Mineral King Valley went to the Supreme Court of the United States, Justice Douglas wrote a very powerful dissenting opinion in which he argued that if ships and municipalities and corporations could be viewed by the law as persons, then so too should pileated woodpeckers, coyotes, trees, and the valley itself. And that decision of the U.S. Supreme Court could have marked a turning point in the history of law, but instead became kind of an academic footnote. Justice Douglas was unable to persuade any of his colleagues to go along with his radical conception of rights for nature. And so the whole idea of rights for nature kind of languished in academic obscurity from the 1970s until the 21st century. And then it really has been resurrected both in the United States and around the world with increasing frequency over the last 10 years. So
0: talk to me about the first country to include personhood for nature in its constitution
2: and why they did it. The first country to include nature's rights in its constitution was the Latin American country of Ecuador. And Ecuador is a country with a very substantial indigenous population, and it was really indigenous people who were the drivers behind this. So Ecuador was drafting a new constitution in the years 2006, 2007, and a coalition of indigenous people came forward with the idea that the constitution should include not only human rights, but rights for what they call Pachamama, which is a Quechua word for Mother Earth. And they were so persuasive that they managed to convince the citizens assembly that was drafting the Ecuadorian constitution to include a series of articles in that constitution, which do recognize the rights of Pachamama. And that revolutionary constitutional document has now been incorporated into more than 70 different environmental laws and policies in Ecuador. So it's permeating the entire legal system. It's in their criminal code, it's in their environmental code. And those rights of nature have actually been relied upon in about two dozen lawsuits now. There's been a lot of focus on New Zealand in this battle for nature's rights.
0: What's happened there? What have they accomplished?
2: Well, New Zealand is actually, I think, the most exciting and the most important story in the whole rights of nature movement. New Zealand is a country, again, that has a substantial indigenous population, and it's the Maori people of New Zealand who have been the drivers behind recognition of the rights of nature in New Zealand. There have been long-standing negotiations in New Zealand taking place to try and right the wrongs that were inflicted upon the Maori by the colonial government over the course of the past 150 years. And about five years ago, a fascinating agreement emerged dealing with a river called the Whanganui River, which is of great cultural importance to certain Maori sub-tribes. And this agreement was revolutionary in that it designated the Whanganui River as a legal person and articulated a series of rights that the river possesses, and then created a guardian kind of model, which would be comprised of Maori individuals and government of New Zealand individuals who have a mandate to ensure that the rights of the Whanganui River are protected. That agreement was Translated into law, a law was passed by the New Zealand Parliament earlier this year, and that was actually the second rights of nature law because in the interim, a second law had been passed dealing with an area formerly known as Te Urewera National Park. And again, this was land that had been wrongly taken from the Maori over the course of the past 150 years. The National Park was created in the 1950s on land that the Maori at that time and for all time had consistently asserted was their land. Now, in the course of negotiations between the New Zealand government and the Maori, they actually reached a verbal agreement that the government would return that land returned the national park to the Maori. But at the 11th hour, the prime minister of New Zealand phoned the chief negotiator for the Maori and said, we can't do it. It's a bridge too far. And any other human being who I think had been through that grueling course of negotiations with the whole backstory of mistreatment over the course of a century would have maybe walked away. But Tamati Kruger, this incredible Maori individual, he actually just turned the other cheek to that insult and said, okay, well, let's figure out a different solution. And the solution that the Maori put forward was, why don't we take this area and remove its national park status, but designate it as a legal person, and then take the government of New Zealand's title to that land and give it to the legal entity we've created. So in effect, the land will own itself. And so this area of 400,000 acres on the North Island of New Zealand is now the first place I'm aware of in the world where humans have relinquished our assertion of ownership and recognized that it's actually probably more sensible and certainly more sustainable for the land to own itself. So where is the United States on this issue? What have been our legal turning points for nature? Well, you know, the United States is a fascinating country from a legal perspective. As I mentioned earlier, it was the Sierra Club lawsuit about the Mineral King Valley that led to this whole idea of rights of nature gaining currency. But more recently, what we've seen in the United States is a revitalization of those ideas at the community level. So we have a grassroots movement in the United States that is achieving remarkable transformation. So The first American community to pass a Rights of Nature Ordinance was a small rural community in Pennsylvania called Tomaqua Borough. And the citizens there were really concerned about a proposal to spread sewage sludge on agricultural land around their community, and they were worried about the potential impacts on their drinking water. And what they found, and this has kind of been consistent over the past decade, they found that the American environmental laws, both federal and state, were really not doing the job of protecting their drinking water from these kinds of threats. And so they took a different route, and they passed this Rights of Nature Ordinance. And that precedent that was set by Tamaqua Borough some 12 years ago has now been followed in over three dozen different American communities, ranging from Santa Monica, California, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, this has really become one of the most intriguing and I think promising battlegrounds in the United States for the future of environmental prosperity, environmental sustainability, and democracy as these community rights of nature ordinances.
0: Now there's a lawsuit filed against the state of Colorado that seeks to win personhood for the Colorado River. What are the problems that the river is facing and how would legal personhood help the Colorado
2: well, the Colorado River, which is, as you know, one of the great natural phenomenons of the United States, having carved the Grand Canyon. I mean, just sit back for a moment and consider that, that the Grand Canyon was carved over eons by the Colorado River. I think the biggest single problem facing the Colorado River in the year 2017 is human over-exploitation. I mean, this is a once great river, which in some years is reduced to a trickle before it reaches the ocean. And that's because too many people are taking too much water for agriculture, for industry, for municipal uses. And what recognizing the rights of the Colorado River would do, you know, what kind of rights does the Colorado River need? It needs, at its most basic level, it needs the right to a a minimum flow of water.
0: So you're an attorney. What are the odds of the Colorado winning
2: I would say that it's a David and Goliath struggle, to be honest. The American legal system is more conservative than the legal systems in other countries, but all it takes really is one judge with the courage of her or his convictions to do what is right in this case and to make a judgment that does set a precedent in the United States. And, you know, one of the interesting cases that rights of nature lawyers like to talk about is a case that was brought centuries ago by an escaped slave named James Somerset in the United Kingdom. And James Somerset actually managed to get a lawyer to represent him in court, and he brought a lawsuit arguing that he was a human being and entitled to the same human rights as other people. And of course, you know, there was huge backlash, people saying, you know, our economy is built on the foundations of slavery and we'll all suffer terribly if this individual has rights recognized, but the judge in that case, Lord Mansfield, issued a judgment in which the key phrase was, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. And he did grant human rights to James Somerset in a case that was integral to the abolitionist movement. And what we're looking for now in the United States is a judge with courage similar to that to make a precedent-setting decision on behalf of nature.
0: David, uh, let's say that nature elements of nature, become legal persons. In our court system, you need humans to act as guardians and even land managers, especially if the land is being subject to activities from tourism to some extraction.
2: So how can we always trust humans to be good stewards for the earth? Well, that's the question that they've answered in New Zealand, Steve. So these laws, that the two laws they've passed in New Zealand designating the Whanganui River and Te Uruwera as legal persons and then transferring title to those legal entities. Those laws also make it very clear that the guardians established by the laws have a legal mandate to ensure that the rights of those ecosystems are protected. And what the laws actually say in New Zealand is that the guardians have a, an obligation to protect and preserve the biological diversity, the ecological integrity, and the cultural heritage of those ecosystems in perpetuity. So that's a crystal clear legal mandate. And I am confident that there are literally millions of people in the United States and Canada who would be thrilled to have the opportunity to serve as legal guardians on behalf of ecosystems, species, and animals in their communities. So, David, when you run into skeptics, what's the
0: one thing you say that you think Has gotten you the most conversions to this way of thinking.
2: I guess if there's one argument that actually has tended to maybe change the minds of some critics it's the comparison with corporations. Corporations have all kinds of rights for better or for worse under Canadian and American law and when you put it to people that why should corporations have rights and not rivers you know neither of them are humans per se but That idea that rights can extend beyond humans to other entities, when it's put in that kind of a context, I find people tend to take a step back and go, oh, let me think about that.
0: In other words, you're saying that you're not only going to elevate the rights of nature, but you're also going to change the way humans relate
2: to nature, huh? Well, I think that's absolutely essential. I mean, as a lawyer, I tend to focus on the law, but what we really do need to do is transform our culture. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as separate from and superior to the rest of the natural world. We have to begin to believe in ourselves as part of a community that we belong to. And, you know, there's really fascinating scientific evidence about this. Over the past two decades, we've made incredible leaps in terms of our understanding of DNA, the basic building block of life. And we now know that human beings, we share DNA not only with chimpanzees and gorillas, we share DNA with every other form of life on the planet, from fungi to fir trees, from aardvarks to zebras. And so if you look at life on Earth through that lens, we are all relatives. And not only should we be treating our other human relatives, with much greater respect and compassion. But we should be extending that respect and compassion to all of our living relatives.
0: David Boyd teaches environmental law at the University of British Columbia, and he's author of The Rights of Nature, A Legal Revolution That Could Save the World. Professor Boyd, thanks for taking the time with us today.
2: Oh, it's been a real delight. Thanks for having me on the show, Steve.
0: If you like the beautiful and photogenic, today's bird note is for you. Mary McCann takes us to the tropical Pacific to meet one of its most exotic and colorful natives.
3: It's early morning on the island of New Guinea. The lowland forest erupts with the crowing calls of male ragiana birds of paradise. Groups of male Ragiana birds of paradise perform elaborate displays to attract females the size of small crows. The males have a yellow head, bright green throat, and a lush mass of fine russet orange plumes that hang well beyond their tails. In a sequence known as the flower display, the males hang upside down with their wings flexed downward while flaunting those russet plumes upward. Birds of Paradise, an aptly exotic name for this most varied and extravagantly decorated group of birds. All 43 species are found on New Guinea or nearby. Picture one named the ribbon-tailed astropia as it flies along the forest edge. With an emerald green head and velvety black body, the Astropia trails two slender white tail plumes a full three feet behind its body. They undulate like fine ribbons in the breeze. I'm Mary McCann.
0: And for pictures, bask in our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, why fisheries matter to landlubbers.
2: Too often we stand on that dock and we gaze wistfully out at the wine-dark sea and think that a fishery is something that happens over the horizon of our attentions. But it is people. It is action. It is an economy. And
0: it requires working waterfronts as well as fish. That's next time on Living on Earth. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Adley Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo. Allison Larstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at loe.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at LivingOnearth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
7: From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888 997 1703. That's 888 997 1703.
1: PRI, Public Radio International.